Well, it gives me great joy to then turn with you in the Word of God to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. We'll read from verse 35, and we'll read down to the end of verse 1 in chapter 5. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Let's uh, ask the Lord again for his blessing as we turn to this word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, with the psalmist, we say that goodness and mercy have followed us all the days of our life. And we have this hope and expectation that we will dwell in the house of our Lord forever. It is a great joy, Lord, to be with the dear brothers and sisters here, new friends, new brothers, new sisters to us. And we thank thee, Lord, for the oneness of thy church. That there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one hope of our calling, one glorious Saviour of sinners. And we pray, O Lord, that thy blessing would rest upon this conference, that thou would come down with power from on high. And above all things, we pray, O God, that we would see Jesus and behold his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We pray it all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Verse 35 of Mark 4. On the same day when the even was come, he said unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with them other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind. And the waves beat into the ship, so it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How, how is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I'd like to take some theme this afternoon, the care of Jesus Christ. There's several reasons why I thought of this theme and this passage to preach on. One reason is that I hope it will illustrate in some way the, the way in which the Psalms would have registered in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. More, more and more, if you want to really know who Jesus is, if you want to know what he thinks and how he thinks, then we need to be students of the Psalms, the Psalms that filled his own mind. But another reason, and 
The great reason really is that there, there is nothing that compares <coughs> to preaching directly on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It, it's always relevant. It, it, it always, whoever, whenever, whenever, it, it always answers the prayer of the people of God. Sir, we would see Jesus. And whatever angle you look at Jesus, there is always, isn't there, more to see. There is always more beauty. There is always more fragrance. There is always more loveliness. Thomas Goodman, the Puritan, said that Christ is love covered in flesh. God is love. And here is the God who is love covered in flesh in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so when we ask the question, does Jesus care? We are getting to the very heart of his character. We, we are asking the question, what is he really like? And we can personalize that question, does Jesus care? And, and ask, does he care for someone like me? Now I submit that's maybe not a question that's pressing in our minds when when everything's going smoothly in life. When, you know, health is good, family's good, school's good, work's good, friends are good, church is good. Yes, there's ups and downs, but, but generally speaking, life is good. But certainly when things come into our lives, when these distresses, these straits, these anguishes come into our lives, then this is no academic question. When you get that devastating news, that doctor's report, when all of a sudden things go so terribly wrong, we ask, don't we? We think maybe if we won't ask it out loud, does God see? Does, does he really care? Maybe you look at the world today and all that's happening and you, you ask and you think to yourself, where is the Lord in all this? Is it true that to be gracious, the Lord forgotten path? Or that his tender mercies he has shut up in his wrath? It's the question even atheists will ask and did ask over 20 years ago in this city with these horrendous events. Where is God when things go wrong? But in the in the lives and in the trials that you have, in the difficulties that you have, in the questions you have, does Jesus care for someone like me? You know, we can all present well, we do present well. We come to church on the Lord's Day, we present well. You can come to a, con a conference here and we, we present well. But is it not true that there can be a calm on our faces as there is a storm in our soul? Perhaps this morning, this afternoon, you come here and there is a storm in your life. Things seem out of control. Maybe it's the sense of sin. The sense of, I've sinned against God. My conscience accuses me. Another is accusing you, and you have this overwhelming sense of what my sins deserve, and that I'm out of control with the sin that so easily besets me, and I feel like I'm going to perish. And you have this question, if you don't say it out loud, you're thinking it, 
Why would one as glorious as Jesus Christ, why would the brightness of the Father's glory, why would the express image of his person, why would the Lord of glory ever think far less care for a sinner like me? And with Peter, we find ourselves saying, depart from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. It's a story. So this is no theoretical question, does Jesus care? We're getting to the heart of this character. Now we want to look at this question from this passage and ask or see three things. Does Jesus care? I want you to see that it's a question that he purposely raises in his people's minds. And secondly, it's a question he powerfully replies to. And thirdly, it's a question he perfectly redirects. He purposely raises it, he powerfully replies to it, and he perfectly redirects it. Does Jesus care? A question he purposely raises in his people's minds. And you, know, you know the story. Young people here, you know the story well. After a busy day, Jesus tells his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. They've done this many times. They're fishermen after all. They've done this hundreds of times. They know the sea. They're at home in the sea. Likely it's a beautiful day for sailing. Nobody, nobody objects to this. Jesus falls asleep on the boat, suggesting at least this calm day. But all of a sudden, as can happen on the Sea of Galilee, as many of you know, that the wind can suddenly pick up and the sky gets dark and the clouds and it begins to rain and then it begins to pour and the waves start to hit onto the boat and then into the boat and very quickly they're in the middle or they're in the eye of this great storm. But they're fishermen. They know what to do. They've been here before. Storms are not unusual for experienced sailors and yet this storm, this storm seems to be one of extraordinary strength. But finally, they get to the place that is the worst nightmare for any sailor. The place where they are out of control at sea. Now, to be out of control anywhere can be a terrifying experience. You're on your bike, you've been down the hill, and you suddenly realize it went too fast, I'm out of control. And you're scared. If you're in a car and you, you hit ice, suddenly you lose the, the steering, you try to correct, you overcorrect, you're out of control. It's a scary thing. To be out of control at sea is indeed a, a perilous thing. Here we're told not only that the waves are crashing onto the boat, they're now crashing into the boat. The boat's filling up with water. Verse 37. The waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And so here now the, the disciples reach this point of desperation. We're going to die. We're going down. We're sinking. We've lost control. We're going to perish at sea. And notice, by the way, how quickly this is all happening. They've had this busy day. They're going across the sea. And they're looking forward to a time of rest, no doubt. But all of a sudden, they're in this, this perilous storm. But it's not just the water, and it's not just the waves, and it's not just 
the sea that's troubled. There's two other things in this passage that really trouble and confuse them. The first thing is that they are in the middle of the storm precisely because they have obeyed Jesus. They're in the storm because they have done what Jesus told them. So these disciples are not like Jonah. Jonah's in a storm because he disobeyed God. Jonah's in a storm because he's going in the wrong direction. But these disciples are going in the very direction that the Lord told them. They're here because they obeyed and they followed the Jesus who said in verse 35, he said unto them, let us pass over unto the other side. And what did they do? They did what all disciples ought to do. They promptly obeyed him. Mark's Gospel here tells us they took him even as he was in the ship. Matthew's Gospel says his disciples followed him. And Luke simply says they launched forth. Does Jesus not say in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and they shall never perish. So here they are then, and the reason they're in the storm, the reason they are at this point of perishing is because they did exactly what Jesus told them. Isn't that so often the great distress that we find ourselves in? Yes, we get ourselves into storms and we know it's our own stupidity. But there's also times, are there not, where we find ourselves in storms that as far as we can tell, as we assess the situation, the reason I am here is precisely because I have sought to follow the Lord. They're in the storm because they did what Jesus told them. Something else, though, that confuses and troubles It's not just that Jesus told them to cross the lake, it's that Jesus is asleep. Now it's interesting, this this is the only time in the Gospels that we're told, if I'm not mistaken, that Jesus was asleep. And here, this is then their problem, they can't make sense of what Jesus is doing. They're in the middle of this life-threatening storm, the wind is blowing, the hurricane-like effects are are, are there, the the water is into the ship, they're out of control, they're beginning to go down. Verse 38 so, so calmly tells us Jesus was in the hinder part of the ship, on a pillow. You wonder to yourself, don't you, what did Jesus think before he went down to sleep? Did he think the words of Psalm 4, verse 8? I will lay me down in peace, and I will sleep, for thou, Lord, art the one who causes me to dwell in safety. But don't you see here, too, the real humanity of Jesus? Your children, our children, some of you perhaps, your parents will say, you can sleep through anything. Sleep through your alarm. You sleep through your parents shouting at you to get up. You sleep through an earthquake, my mum used to say to me. Well, not anymore. 
Not anymore. I don't sleep as well as I used to do. When you get older, often you don't, some of us at least don't sleep as well as we used to. But look at Jesus here. Waves are crashing into this boat. The, the wind is howling. The, he, he is drenched here. And he is, he is asleep. He is absolutely exhausted. You see the real humanity. He's been preaching all day. You read the whole chapter 4. He's been preaching all day. He's been teaching. He's been dealing with this person and that person. This question, that question. This sermon, that sermon. He, and, and he is absolutely exhausted. Nobody worked as hard as he did. Nobody had the enormous pressure that he had on his shoulders. And so no doubt the disciples had let him sleep. You know, we're the fishermen. We can take care of this voyage. This is what we're good at. You sleep. But do you, do you see the lesson here? The lesson for us is that we are, that so often the disciples are tested exactly at the point that you think are strongest. Moses is known for his meekness. And yet he strikes the rock and anger. Peter is known for being bold, and yet a little maid makes him curse and swear he does not know the Savior. Here are the fishermen, known for their skill and the courage at sea. This is their area of strength. This is their area of expertise. And here they are in this boat, crying out for help. Crying out, you notice, to, to who? That's the question. They're crying out to the carpenter's son. Now, why would fishermen in a storm cry out to the son of a carpenter for help in navigating the boat? You see there the, the germ, as it were, of faith. Because they realize that this is more than a carpenter's son. And there's more than just a cry of terror here. There's the cry of faith. But here the point is, we're emphasizing in the lives of God's people, in your life, life, my dear friend, nothing happens by chance. When you follow Christ and you do what he says, nothing happens by accident. Christ has a purpose in bringing his people through the storm. He is bringing them to see that their strength is weakness in his sight. To see just how weak and poor and needy their best efforts are to make them see that there is no point of their lives. Have we learned this lesson? There is no point of our lives over which we can say, I can do without Jesus Christ here. Oh, I need him there. I need him in worship. I need him in prayer. I need him in preaching. But I'm okay over here at my work. No, you're not. You need Christ at every point, at every time. There is no point of our lives over which we can say we, we can do without Christ here. Jesus then often brings devastating experiences into the lives of his people, not to harm or destroy them, but to bring them to depend more and more and more upon himself. So does Jesus care? It's a question he purposely raises in Reminds. But secondly, here it's a question that he gives a powerful, to which he gives a powerful reply. Now, I'm going to break a, 
homiletical rule here, and I'm going to smuggle in another point. So, the other point here is, this is a painful reply. This is a painful reply. In, in many ways, it's the most painful, it's the most hurtful question that was ever asked of anyone, anywhere. You know, people can question a lot about you, can't they? They can question your strength, they can question your skill, they can question your knowledge, they can question your beauty, they can question your speed, they can question your knowledge, they can question your wisdom. That's one thing. But it's another thing, isn't it, when people question your care. That's the source of it. After all, what did Jesus say again in John 10, that the real difference between the good shepherd and the hired hand, the hireling is? When the wolf comes, the one who's in it for himself, the one who, who is hired for the service and in it for himself, he flees. Why? Because he doesn't care of the sheep. The good shepherd does not flee. He'll give his life for the sheep. Now listen to this question again. Master, don't you care? What a terrible thing to say to Christ. My dear friends, the reason he is here is because he cares. The reason you can find him asleep, absolutely exhausted on this boat, is because he cares. He has been preaching, he has been teaching, he has been preaching again and teaching again, he has been healing, and he is absolutely exhausted on this boat, and there is all the evidence you need to see how deeply this man cares. Here is the eternal Son of God. Here is the one of whom we sing in Psalm 121. This is the God who what? Slumbers not, nor sleeps. And here he is, that God, in the person of his son, sound asleep in exhaustion in a boat. Why? He has made, Hebrews 2 says, in all points like unto his brethren. Why? Not just so that he would sleep the sleep of exhaustion, but so that he would sleep the sleep of death. Oh, this is the God who for his people cares. But we see here in this powerful reply his purpose. He's showing his power. And he's showing his care. Because what is it? What is it that woke Jesus up? What woke the Savior up from his exhaustion? What woke up the exhausted Savior? It wasn't the howling of the wind. It wasn't the rocking of the boat. It wasn't the raging of the sea. It wasn't the lashing of the waves. It wasn't the rain and the waves that were drenching him in the hinder part of the ship. That did not wake him up. What woke the good shepherd up was the bleating of a sheep. The good shepherd does not flee when trouble comes. The good shepherd cares, the good shepherd loves his sheep, the good shepherd gives his life for sheep, and the good shepherd wakes up and hears the sheep bleating. Master, save us, we perish. God 
is our refuge and our strength in straits, a present aid. Now, Thomas Boston writes here of the prayer of the disciples. He notes the unbelief. He says, the language of passion is sometimes mixed with the language of grace in the prayers of the saints. There's, there's a lot of bad in this prayer. But Jesus hears the germ of faith. Though it's like the, the small seed, the mustard seed, he heard it and it wakes him up. And I tell you this afternoon that when you cry to this same Savior and say, rise, help and redeem us, thy mercy we trust, you will have it so attention. You will have what it says here, and he arose. And then he gives this powerful, powerful response in verse 39. He arose and rebuked the wind. Isn't this incredible? Do you ever see a man speaking to a storm? He arose and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace. Majestic, awesome power. There's something so impressive about the sea, isn't there? Down on the coast of Florida a few years ago, I remember looking at the, the big waves that were crashing onto the shore relentlessly. There's something uncontrollable about the sea. It's so big, isn't it? Even, even on the coastline. So powerful, so impressive. I remember thinking then as I gazed off towards Scotland, the words of Psalm 95, to him the spacious sea belongs, for he the same that made, he made the sea. The sea is his. Now we wonder what did Jesus think when he woke up and he saw the waves and the wind? Some, some commentators suggest maybe there is a satanic element here can't prove that, but it's, it's, that's, that's what some said, because of the strength of this. And he rebukes the sea. But what did he think? Did he go to Psalm 93? Did he think, the floods, O Lord, have lifted up. They lifted up their voice. The floods, O Lord, have lifted up and made a mighty noise. But yet the Lord that is on high is more of might by far than is the noise of many such as great sea billows are. Or did this mind go to Psalm 89, verse, eight, verse 9? Even in the raging of the sea, thou over it dost reign. When the waves are often swell, but still is then again. Or did he, as he looked at the stormy sea and the stormy disciples, did he simply go to Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God? And then the Prince of Peace, the mighty God, simply speaks and says, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. What power. Oh, what power is in the Savior, my dear friend. There's times in your life and all you see are the storms and the waves, you see everything out of control, and the real difficulty in your experience is you don't, you, you don't hear Jesus' voice. It's as though he's asleep. 
sleep might not say it, but that's the way it seems to you. He's not aware of my situation, it would seem. He doesn't recognize my pain. You feel all alone in a storm all by yourself, nobody seeing, nobody caring. Does Jesus care? It's a question he purposely raises. It's a question he powerfully implies to. Thirdly here, it's a question he perfectly redirects. And he begins this redirection by redirecting their questions. You know, as a teacher, he used to say to students, there's no bad questions. You can ask anything. You just ask anything. It's not really true, is it? There are bad questions. This is a terrible question. Does Jesus care? Notice how he redirects it. Why are you so fearful? It is your faith. That's the real question here. You know, he doesn't start here and say, you know, you fishermen, where's your skill? Where's your naval experience? Where's your naval cottage? You're a fisherman, aren't you? That's not the relevant question. The relevant question is this in the eye of the storm. Where is your faith? problem, you see, and it's our problem too, is the circumstances control the faith rather than the other way around. The circumstances blur our vision of Christ. It says, well, Christ is coming and he's saying, is, is this what you think of me? Is this the view you have of me? Is this the impression you have had in these first four chapters of this gospel of Mark that I am one who doesn't care? Where is your faith? Who made the sea? Who upholds all things by the word of his power? We're thankful for questions like these in the Bible, aren't we? Why do we have so little faith? Why did you doubt? Where is your faith? And of course, this should make us a lost. Do we have faith? God has often used these kinds of circumstances in the lives of people to show them that they don't have faith at all. Martin Luther in the storm, Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. So often he's bringing these circumstances into the lives of his people to mature their faith, to sharpen and focus their faith, to put the right question in their mouth. It is your faith. In their straits here, you go through the different gospels, it appears many of them are shouting out to Jesus. One person is saying, Lord, save us, we perish. Another is saying, Master, don't you care? We perish. Another one saying, Master, Master, we perish. And yet even as we said in, in their straits, they're calling out to the carpenter's son. And wonderfully, Christ replies to even the weakest faith, the poorest faith. The faith that is mixed up with so much confusion, so much that's wrong, so much that's sinful, frankly. Even if there is faith like the grain of the mustard seed, even if it's unrecognizable to the disciples themselves, it's recognizable to Christ. Amen. He saw it, he heard it, it woke him out of his deep Christ replies to the weakest of faith that looks to him. Amen. So he answers. He rebukes the wind, there's this great calm suddenly. What power? Not a ripple in the sea. Peace. And there's three effects here 
to this powerful reply. The first effect of verse 31 is that no, they feared God. It says in verse 31, they feared exceedingly. Now that's maybe not what we'd expect it to say. We might expect it to say, you know, here's this great storm and they're afraid a lot and it calms down and it's, there's not a ripple in the ocean and they relaxed. They calmed down. They were at peace. No, it says they feared exceedingly. It's as though they're more afraid now than they were in the eye of the storm. But of course, this is a different fear. This is the fear of God. The fear of God, Hugh Martin said, is an adoring reverence. It is to be profoundly aware, as Jacob was, God is here. God is in this place. They fear God. The second effect is that they now focus on Christ. You see the progression of the questions? Does Jesus care? Where is your faith? Now what's the question? Who is this? Who is this? Isn't it true that whatever experience you go through, if you are brought to that question, is a blessed experience. Who is this? What manner of man is this? This was Christ's purpose in the beginning. Maturing their faith, making them see who he is. Notice it's not even what manner of faith do I have? What manner of man is this? Because faith is always taken up with its object. With Christ. That's a great place to come. What manner of man is this? This is a real man. This is a man who's tired. This is a man who's exhausted. This is a man who sleeps through a storm. This is a man who's hungry in the wilderness, thirsty in the desert. This is a real man, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. But my dear friend, though he is a real man, he is not a mere man. This is the man who, though he is exhausted, says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the man who, though he is hungry, says, I am the bread of life. He that believeth in me shall never hunger. This is the man who, though he is thirsty, says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. What manner of man says, This is the God man. Now these storms in our lives again, if they bring us to this, to fix our eyes, to focus our eyes upon Jesus Christ. As we look at the storms of persecution, the storm clouds gathering for the church today, let us focus our mind on this question. What manner of man is this? What kind of a saviour do you have here in America? If you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and your King, I tell you, if you ask this question, it will fuel your prayer. Here is a man who with a word can calm the stormy sea when things seem so out of control and impossible to us. This is a man who will bring him to the other side. That's why we read Mark 5 verse 1. Don't ever read this passage without reading Mark 5 verse 1. And they came over unto the other side of the sea. Let me just quickly go to Revelation 21 with you and read the first thing we read there of 
the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21, verse 1, when we think of the other side, I saw, John says, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and listen, and there was no more sea. The sea that the revelation represents where the dragon is and where the forces of wickedness do their work, there is no more sea. This Savior will bring all these people to the other side, to Emmanuel's land that lost an everlasting glory. What manner of man is this? Yeah. Now the last effect and the great effect is that not only does, do they fear God and they now focus on Christ, but now they fix their eyes on Calvary's cross. What manner of man is this to us? And here, here they realize it's the one who can save and does save his people, not just from drowning in the, on the Sea of Galilee, but from drowning in everlasting woe and hell itself in the lake that burns with fire and quenchable. This, is, this, this man is that man who saves his people from that awful woe. And he does not do it. You need to see this. He does not do that by merely speaking a word. The God who can say, let there be light and there is light. The God who can say, shh, to the stormy wind and it's quiet, cannot say, Peace be still, and the sin is simply dismissed. No, something more is required. Something more is needed to save sinners like me, like you, to save all people that on earth who dwell, who are to sing praise to God. This Christ had to go through another storm, a far, far, infinitely greater storm than this one. The storm of which we sing in Psalm 69. You want the Psalms of the cross, you go to Psalm 22, and you go to Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is the one that's quoted most in the New Testament, referring to Christ and his work. And that psalm begins to say, Save me, O God, because the floods do so environ me that even unto my very soul come in the waters be. I downward in deep mire do sink, where standing there is none. I am into deep waters come, where floods have over me gone. Why is he here? Why is he here? Why is the brightness of the Father's glory here? He says in that psalm, it is for thee I am reproached, for thee I suffer shame, until my brethren know me not, and hated is my name. And what did Jesus find? What did the Savior find in that storm? As the storm clouds began to gather over Gethsemane, when the shadow of Calvary began, began to loom over him in the garden, when he begins to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, when he begins to bear our sorrows and carry our grief, when he begins to take the transgression and the iniquity and the sin of all his strain, sheep upon him. What does he find in that storm? Matthew 26, verse 40, he comes to the disciples. He finds them asleep. Again and again and again. You know, watch. You know, watch with 
If he don't say it, don't you care? Psalm 142, verse 4, another messianic song. Jesus says, I looked on my right hand and beheld that there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for me. There's no disciple, there's no angel. No, not God himself is in this storm saying, peace be still. Thou hast brought me down to darkness, Psalm 88. Beneath thy wrath I am oppressed. All thy billows of affliction overwhelm my soul, distressed. Waves of wrath have surged about me, dark and lonely is my way. Now ask it again, my dear friend. Look at Calvary's cross and ask it again, what manner of man is this? I see a man who's powerful. I see a man with poise. But above all these things, I see, I see the God who for his people cares. That, my dear friend, is what Jesus Christ is really like. That's the truth we need in all the storms of our life. Peter learned his lesson in Acts 12. You can read of another storm Peter's in. He's in prison. Herod's killed James, the brother of John. He's now captured Peter. That's a storm. And the night before his execution, Acts 12, verse 6, in the eye of the storm, when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping beside the soldiers. You wonder if his mind went back to this time when Jesus was telling him that he often brings his people through devastating experiences to show just how much he cares. And it's Peter who says to you and to me in this epistle, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. Oh, learn this lesson, for he careth for you. Amen. Oh Lord, what will we render unto thee for all thy benefits to us? We thank thee so much for Jesus Christ, the God who for his people cares. Lord, we pray that we would fix our eyes upon this glorious Savior and be still and know with our God for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.